This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit, in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting's 2FM radio stations in Michigan and the Midwest, and Supertalk Mississippi Media's 12 radio stations and 50 affiliate stations in the South. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joe Lott and Sami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sodorch, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit, and our distinguished guest hosts and presenters, the former governor of Mississippi, Phil Bryant, and the Honorable Morris McTeague, QSO. America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. brings together leading voices from business, government, media, technology, healthcare, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, Google, and Fireside. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. iLeadersSummit.org. Welcome to America's Roundtable. Welcome to America's Roundtable. It is Saturday morning, and thank you for joining us. This weekend on America's Roundtable, we're delighted to host a distinguished guest, a principal leader, former U.S. Congressman Thomas Garrett Jr. from the Commonwealth of Virginia, who has just returned from an extended trip to Ukraine and having spent time on the front lines just a few miles from the Russian border. Former Congressman Garrett represented citizens from the Commonwealth of Virginia's 5th Congressional District, serving on committees on homeland security, foreign affairs, and education and workforce. And prior to his leadership efforts in the U.S. Congress, Tom Garrett served the 22nd District in the Commonwealth of Virginia Senate, Assistant Attorney General for the Commonwealth, and a U.S. Army veteran where he was based in the Balkans. Congressman Garrett is also bringing to the forefront the plight of the 70 million people and hundreds of millions more around the world facing persecution through their new documentary series, Exile. This project is a collaborative endeavor with Matt Whitworth, the documentary filmmaker known for HBO's The Swamp. Congressman Garrett, a good morning to you and welcome home. Welcome, Congressman Garrett. Thank you all for having me. Yeah, I'm happy to be back on U.S. soil uh, and at some level sad to not be in Ukraine. It's a Strange, strange mix. Congressman Garrett, we all have been following the news, witnessing through broadcast media the Russian invasion of a sovereign state of Ukraine and watching in horror the brazen attacks targeting civilians, residential areas and now learning of mass graves. These crimes against humanity are being witnessed once again on the European continent just 27 years after the Bosnian War and 22 years after the ethnic cleansing of Kosovo, both places in the Balkans. Congressman Garrett, could you share with the listeners what led you and your team to head to Ukraine? And what were your first impressions when entering this war-torn nation? Well, so it's in conjunction with our efforts at ExileSeries.com. And um, what we want to do uh, with the Exile Series, which is designed and conceived as a documentary series, is sort of shine a light on man's inhumanity to his fellow man, and specifically... um, wars, uh, conflicts that are motivated either by animus against people of faith or, or ethnic groups, um, but, but essentially minorities. And while at first blush, I think most people don't perceive the conflict in Ukraine as that, I come home feeling more like it's an ethnic cleansing than I ever did before I got there. We had remarkable access, um, and I didn't go in with the congressional delegation or any sort of official junket. Um, and I think that that sort of baffled some of the people we were working with in Ukraine that I was willing to go to the places we went. Um, but remarkable access and had 
the opportunity to interview Russian guests of Ukraine, uh, which are POWs. And their comments really brought it home to me, right? So why are you here? Um, the impression that they had was that they would be greeted as liberators, that they were going to liberate their Russian brothers. There's been this sort of argument from Putin that Belarus, Kiev and Rus, which is Ukraine, and Russia are all the same. And I understand it. Uh, that said, you see the same thing in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict with the kind of this is ours, no, no, it's ours. The reality is that the right to claim leadership of the triumvirate of Russian ethnic peoples, if anyone owns it, it would ironically be Ukraine. Kiev was, it was a capital of a great kingdom for several hundred years before Moscow was anything other than a sleepy backwater. And likewise, obviously, in the Middle East, there were Jews in, in Israel long before there were Muslims, as in like thousands of years. And ironically, and I'll digress for a moment, there were Jews in Mecca and Medina before Muhammad sort of uh, scrubbed them from that land. But so there's this idea that Ukraine's moving away from their Russian identity, and it's, it's completely false. There's a very separate and distinct Ukrainian identity. Um, I would say that I think Putin counted on the Ukrainian people, particularly in the north and east, to welcome his soldiers with open arms. I spoke with a number of civilians who very candidly said, when this started, we thought, okay, finally, we'll be reunited with Russia where everything will get better. And a week or two later, they were like the biggest Ukrainian patriots ever because they watched how Russia had, Russia had persecuted this war. So, if anything, the effort to erase the Ukrainian identity and amalgamate it into a greater Russian identity has had the opposite effect on the ground. And this is universal. Uh, we talked to a lot of people, and this is sort of a universal sentiment. There were those who were always opposed to it. There were those who supported it and, and would, would, would admit so publicly and say, you know, but after watching this for a couple of weeks, we thought, boy, were we wrong. And that's remarkable. We were just uh, listening to a recent report that stated that Russian propaganda is really actually getting the news across the world and even in the United States by saying that a lot of these things are being staged by the Ukrainian forces and it's not really what's happening on the ground. But when we see the evidences of these mass graves, and as you've rightfully described, what we're witnessing is ethnic cleansing in Ukraine. Right. So it's not a genocide per se because... The Russian aim is not to kill all the Ukrainians. It is instead to erase the unique Ukrainian identity and pull them under a Russian umbrella. And, I mean, again, you go back to the ninth century before uh, the Kiev and Rus sort of asserted themselves uh, amongst the Slavic tribes that were in that area. The, the, the Danes and the Norwegians tended, when they were Vikings, to go west and south, and the Swedish Vikings went right to the east, down the Baltics, and all the way to the Black Sea. So that's pretty long, right? And then you, you get these three bands, the Belarusians, the Russians, and the Kievan Rus. But Ukraine's identity is an ethnic mix. You have the Khazars, who are a Jewish uh, Eurasian steppe tribe, who ruled for quite some time, a massive Slavic influence. Um, you have Turkic people. You have Greeks, believe it or not. Um, and it's all sort of meshed together. And certainly when you're in Kiev, they're very keen on pointing out their Viking heritage. But it's all sort of meshed together. And you've got Tatars and you've got uh, different groups in Crimea, but in, into this sort of Ukrainian idea. And then when you go and you see these frontline units, there's certainly diversity to the eye. 
but they know what they're fighting for, and it is this this nation that they consider to be their own, and I think rightfully so. So, and again, Putin's sort of the trying to play the patriarchal figure who's going to solve everybody's problems, and that's been wholesale rejected. Over the past week, uh, Tom, the Biden administration has asked Congress for an additional $30 billion in aid for Ukraine, which includes $20 billion in military aid, $8.5 billion in economic aid for Kyiv, and $3 billion for humanitarian relief. And recently, Congressman Michael McCall, a Texas Republican and ranking member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, stated that Republicans who have been engaged in supporting Ukraine might have acted even more expediently if they held the House majority. And he said, I quote, every day we don't send them more weapons is a day where more people will be killed and a day where they could lose this war. I think they can win it, but we have to give them the tools to do it, unquote. Uh, Congressman Garrett, in this twofold question, how would you grade the Biden administration's efforts in handling the crisis at the doorstep of NATO's alliance, and what are the military leaders and elected officials in Ukraine asking for uh, in the areas of military or lethal military aid and support from the United States? So I'm beating this drum, and, and you've given me the opportunity to say it again. If the world had given Ukraine publicly, intentionally publicly, a third of the military assistance in the three months prior to the invasion that they gave them in the three weeks after the invasion, there would have been no invasion. I have no doubt about that. And so we sort of stood with our, and we being the West collectively, to a large extent, with our heads in the sand, um, and, and, and acted as if we couldn't believe that this could happen on the European continent in the 21st century. And as a result, there is an untold, yet to be determined, and I think we'll never get it exactly right, death toll. Um, so that's definitively true. I, I don't I, you know, it's funny because I have a career that I was in politics. I don't want to get too political, but it's my deeply held core belief that the Biden administration understands the sentiment amongst the American public, and I and I just think this move is a disingenuous move. Uh, I know some things that I'm not comfortable discussing about how aid came initially. I know that the lethal aid, uh, specifically but not exclusively in the form of javelin missiles that went to Ukraine, went exclusively under the Trump administration. The Obama administration was sending humanitarian aid after the 2014 uh, annexing, taking war on, whatever whatever you want to call it, of the Donbass and Crimea regions. Um, so every javelin missile fired by the Ukrainians for the first month of the conflict came from the Trump administration. And ironically, Trump was impeached in part for having cut off military aid to Ukraine, um, which is funny since he cut something off that they never gave to begin with. And further, when Biden was inaugurated, there were there were arms inbound in the Black Sea that by executive order were turned around in January of 2021. So it, it just that, that signal, and everybody knows this is watching, so that signal to Putin is uh, sort of a laissez-faire approach. One of the things that, that galls me as we work on exile is it's not just mistakes made by the West that allow for the eradication of religious and ethnic minorities, but it's also inaction, right? It's not just bad actions, but also bad inactions. I think it's politically expedient, and this administration hasn't behaved in a manner to date that causes me to believe that there's a sincere motivation to do anything other than to retain power, given some of the flip-flops on things like Title 42 that you see going back and forth. We were 
12 miles from Russia, and I watched Russian T-52s from a seven-story rooftop as long as we could before they call artillery on our position. We decided it might be a good idea to go. The Ukrainians are winning this war right now. Uh, they pulled their frontline units out of the attempted envelopment of Kiev to send them north, then east, then south to help reinforce their efforts in Mariupol. They still haven't broken uh, the resistance there, although I think they will declare victory probably today. I don't know when this program will air to coincide with the Russian Victory Day, the Second World War. With that said, if you want me to glance into my crystal ball, uh, Liberation Day in Mariupol from the 2014 conflict is, I believe, June 17th. Um, and I would bet you that there is a wholesale effort to regain control of the shattered remnants of that port city uh, as soon as the Russians declare victory, which I don't think they'll actually have. So it's it's, it's dynamic, but truly, having been on the front, um, this is a costly war in terms of money, but also, more importantly, in terms of human life. That said, the Ukrainians are winning right now, so the aid we give is good. Um, it's needed. Um, it's, there's a real problem with logistics flow from the west to the east, because a lot of the good stuff, if you will, is kind of getting pilfered by commanders, regional commanders, as it heads towards the actual combat areas in the east. Uh, but it's working. Uh, I have stood in a room with Javelin missiles and other U.S. hardware um, in in the heart of the fight. So they're getting there. It's just not getting there as well as it, it should. And candidly, if it was sent earlier, I think the results would be better. And lives would have been saved. I mean, as you mentioned in the beginning, actually, this all could have been avoided. And when we look at the death toll, and the United Nations said this past week that more than 3,000 civilians were killed in Russia's bombings of residential areas in cities across Ukraine. Uh, the general staff of Ukraine's armed forces said that Russia had suffered 23,200 combat deaths since the start of the invasion on February 24. And Mr. Zelensky said that since the invasion, Russia has caused $600 billion in infrastructure damage. On the other side, Russia released the death toll of its military service members just on March 25, when it says that just 1,350 soldiers were killed in, as they called it, they don't call it a war, they call it special military operation. Russia continues this misinformation through the state run television and media as you talk to prisoners of war uh, russians uh, you said that they are actually are coming under the mission to save their brothers in ukraine do you think that there is a opportunity to break this misinformation wall in russia i've seen misinformation here from people i wouldn't expect it from i had sort of a dogmatic theme for a long time and that is if you can choose between freedom and truth what should you choose? My answer is you choose truth, because inherently in a world where the truth is told, freedom is a natural uh, offshoot of that. This entire effort by Putin is built on lies. I'll tell you that I have been some places, and the numbers that Russia's giving for combat deaths are literally laughable. I, I met with a, a prisoner of war who had, had volunteered, and there's a long backstory. Two weeks after this conflict started, he was a few years younger than me. He served two years as a conscript in the 1990s. Volunteered, I said, what sort of training did you get before you came? He said, we did a road march and I fired a weapon. And then they sent him to the front to work on clearing mines. He had no training in that. And so, you know, the fact that he's alive, albeit a little banged up, and that might be a hyperbolic understatement, um, is a miracle. Putin sent that man to die without regard for he or his family, and yet still 
based on how he's being treated by the Ukrainians, he's convinced that he will get to go back to Russia. And I could not get him to say it was Putin's fault. Well, what he would say is, well, he's the president, and I'm not, so what do I know? It's mind-numbing. Uh, so the fear of what will happen to himself and his family when he returns to Russia is greater than the fear that he has of saying, quote-unquote, the wrong thing in front of his Ukrainian captors. And that this man should have volunteered after this conflict with no military training and within a couple of weeks found himself on the front in a very dangerous position where to have a chance of survival, you need technical proficiency, tactical proficiency. speaks to Putin's regard for his rank-and-file soldiers, and it's disgusting. Congressman Garrett, uh, May 9 is an important day for Russia, namely Russia celebrates Victory Day to commemorate Soviet forces' victory over Nazi Germany in World War II. And Western officials are now speculating, uh, saying that uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin is under pressure to announce some kind of battlefield victory on May 9. What are your thoughts about it? So I think what you'll get is a declaration of victory. I think they'll call it a liberation of Mariupol, which does really sort of complete the land bridge from the Donbass and the east to Crimea. Um, if you if you really want to understand how people felt, and I use past tense intentionally, about this, look at the Ukrainian independence referendum uh, from 1992, I believe. And it was, I think, a 92% yes vote for independence. But if you look at it by region, it was 54-55% for independence in the Crimea. It was slightly higher in the Donbass and Donetsk regions. Uh, even Kharkiv and Mariupol have strong Russian influences. But the longer people, uh, particularly in Ukraine on that side of the line, where they can distill information because they get both sides of the story, and there's certainly propaganda both ways, that's what war looks like. Um, the longer they watch this, the more people come to the, yeah, this is bad. Yeah, I think he'll declare victory in Mariupol and, and claim the land bridge uh, on that on that date. But as I noted, the liberation of Mariupol holiday from the 2014 conflict comes up in June, and that's a fluid battlefield. It's certainly very bleak there, but I think the Ukrainians haven't written victory in that region off yet. I just think they feel like it's time, and it's about shifting resources as needed to where they're needed. I think what the Ukrainian people have done is to communicate their significant adherence to the importance of freedom. And they're not leaving their towns. You're talking to men and young men that are saying that we're going to stay in our town, in our village, in our community, and we're going to defend our sovereign state. And that has really inspired the world. Uh, Tom, when you met people on the streets in Kiev and also going just a few miles close to the Russian border and meeting with the Ukrainian people, what did they want Americans to hear? What was their message that they wanted to deliver to our fellow Americans? Well, we did a great disservice, and specifically General Milley did a great disservice to the Ukrainian people when he said aloud that he thought Kiev could fall in three days. Right, and it was it was implausible. Now, this is, and I don't know General Milley, and I'm sure that you know, given his service, which I respect, he's a good fellow. But that is an information warfare bullet in the gun of Vladimir Putin, and that, and the Ukrainian people heard that, and so their their own confidence was shaken, except in these frontline military units where they kind of just shook their heads incredulously. Um, but the the defense and depth around Kiev is evident of a very real concern that they had. And what I mean is, you get 20 miles outside the city in any direction, and they've ripped all the words off the highway signs. They haven't taken the signs down, because that would be expensive to put back up, so that you, so the Russians can't use them 
to navigate. They've got, I mean, I've been through some checkpoints in places like Syria and Iraq, but the number and frequency and, and the depth of them, that all speaks to um, them believing that threat. So I'll tell you an anecdotal story that just blew my mind. I was there and I was looking for a roadmap of all of Ukraine. I was in Viv in the far west, which is uh, you know, it's beautiful and it's actually getting close to normalcy right now. And that's a relative term. But uh, there's an older gentleman who had a Ukrainian flag around his neck trying to sell tourist maps, you know, in a, in a time when there aren't very many tourists. And I went up and we had an exchange in broken English because I speak no Ukrainian. And I explained that I wanted a map of all of Ukraine, which he couldn't believe and he didn't have. But then he said, all of Ukraine. And I said, yes. And he got down on his hands and knees and dug underneath of his kiosk. And so he finally found one old copy of a highway map of all of Ukraine. And then a young man, probably 15 years old, came up and they exchanged words. And I suppose the young man told him I was a soldier. And he got tears in his eyes and started giving me hugs and handed me the map and wouldn't take money and said, go kill Russians. Go kill Russians, which is not what I was there to do. But they, they're they're steeled in this conflict and they're unified. They really are. Um, again, even people who, who months ago thought maybe this will be a good thing. They're, they're disgusted. And, and so the, the metaphor I used on an interview I did was it's like somebody slapped their mother, right? Imagine sort of what you would do if somebody went after your mom. And, and, they're, and then you compound that with the fact that particularly amongst younger people, everybody knows somebody who's, who's dead. It's bizarre. But real, genuine, sincere gratitude when they see Westerners who they perceive to be on their team. I mean, it's, it's very humbling. As we're recording this program from Eastern Europe, right on European uh, continent here, uh, and traveling through some of these countries here, meeting with America's allies, we're hearing about the comments about America's leadership today. And Congressman Garrett, what are foreign leaders saying about America's leadership on the global stage when you are visiting people, uh, whether it was Ukraine or other places in the world, and when they see Joe Biden, the helm of our nation, are they pleased with what they're seeing? Or are they deeply concerned? There's a real gratitude for everything we do, uh, but the perception is that America's not leading. Um, the leaders in support for Ukraine, understandably, I would put Poland at the front of the line. And I say understandably because the, the Poles can read a map, right? And so they understand that this is kind of existential for them and it needs to be stopped where it is or else it could visit a lot closer to home. I flew out of Krakow and the number of air defense batteries around Krakow on this last trip out I've never seen anything like it, and I spent almost six years on active duty and then a lifetime of interesting experiences in between. We're not leading. We're, we're leading from behind, uh, but there's a real gratitude. I think if you listen to President Zelensky, uh, when he's asked by the American media what the U.S. can do, etc., the answer is always some form of, oh, we're so grateful for everything you're doing, but here's what we need. So it's well-crafted to not be ungrateful, but... Uh, the leadership has come from, first, I would say, Poland and, to the lesser extent, the Czech Republic, Romania, Bulgaria. Uh, the Hungarians seem to be kind of trying to figure out which way this is going to go. The Serbs are pretty darn pro-Russian. Yeah, we're not leading. Uh, at least we're participating. The scary thing is, obviously, is Putin a rational actor? If he's not a rational actor, does he think, well, I just drop a tactical nuclear weapon on Kharkiv and tell the rest of the world they're next? And I'll bet everybody gets out of the way. I don't know. It, that's, that's what scares me most about this is what happens when the rabbit dog is back into a corner 
And in the intelligence community, there is obviously speculation as to whether or not we're dealing with a rational actor. And, and the other thing that you hear repeatedly is that the Vladimir Putin that dealt with George W. Bush is not the same Vladimir Putin that's dealing with the world right now, and that he's different, that he's somehow devolved. On the vital U.S. front, the Wall Street Journal's editorial board writes... I quote, the leak of a draft majority opinion from the Supreme Court that would overturn Roe v. Wade is an unprecedented breach of trust and one that might be assumed was done with malice afterthought. The court's response should be to go about its business as usual and not be intimidated. The question to ask in a leak case is always, Cubono, who benefits? The court confirmed Tuesday that the leaked draft by Justice Samuel Alito is real. So we doubt the leak came from the five justices or their clerks in the apparent majority. What would they have to gain? The leaker is probably someone who opposes the majority view and wants to bring outside pressure to bear on the court to turn one of the justices and sustain a constitutional right to abortion. But as we reported, the pressure is intense to get one of them to turn, which has happened before. The editorial concludes by stating, a pattern of preemptive leaks of draft opinions would destroy the court, unquote. Congressman Garrett, what are your thoughts regarding the Supreme Court leak, and what does it say about the integrity of this nation's highest court when someone, apparently for political partisan reasons, has breached this trust? Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Nobody ever gets fired. Nothing ever gets investigated. It is, it is the most ridiculous ethical breach imaginable. And, and it is definitively designed to allow pressure to be placed upon the court vis-a-vis the court of public opinion, right? At least the protests will be mostly peaceful, I say tongue-in-cheek. And it's unethical, and this person who leaked it almost definitively is going to sit for a bar exam and an ethics exam somewhere if they haven't already. Yeah, so K-Bene is always the right question to ask. I'm disgusted by it. I expect it will never get to the bottom of it uh, because there are those who don't want us to get to the bottom of it. But this is a 30-year pattern of selective leaking of sensitive information, whether in the national security realm or here, one that would compromise jurisprudence. I would love it if someone would would be brought out into the light for having done it, but I have absolutely no confidence whatsoever that it would happen. And if you made me take a bet, I'd bet that it won't. And it's shameful. It, it, It absolutely obliterates checks and balances and destroys the independence of the court and creates, because the court's supposed to be free of the pressures of the electorate by design, hence the lifetime appointment, etc. So yeah, it's, it's a republic if you can keep it, Joel. Absolutely. And Congressman Garrett, we have certainly been appreciative of your continued leadership on the U.S. front, as well as in Eastern Europe and Ukraine, as well as in other very difficult parts of the world. We encourage our engaged listeners to check out ExileSeries.com. We encourage our engaged listeners to go visit the site and share that with your friends, your partners, those in the church community as well. And we certainly thank you, Congressman Garrett, for your important important work in advancing freedom. Thank you, Congressman Garrett. God bless you guys. God bless you. 
This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit, in partnership with Lanza Broadcasting's two FM radio stations in Michigan and the Midwest, and Supertalk Mississippi Media's 12 radio stations and 50 affiliate stations in the South. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joe Ladinsami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sodorchi, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit, and our distinguished guest hosts and presenters, the former governor of Mississippi, Phil Bryant, and the Honorable Morris McTeague, QSO. America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. brings together leading voices from business, government, media, technology, healthcare, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, Google, and Fireside. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. iLeadersSummit.org.